Uh, it's good to be here with you and to go to God's word. Uh, you heard Kara read from the book of Luke. We're going to begin our time in Galatians 5 today. And so uh, we're trying to do that every week in this series. Go back and pick up the last link in the chain from the week before. And so I'd invite you to head that direction uh, if you can and to uh, be prepared to read that in just a few minutes. I have two disclaimers for you today. So the first is this. Uh, our time together this morning may feel a little bit more like a lecture than normal. Uh, this is the product of, a, of years, to be honest with you, of just meeting with a lot of people. I alluded to this a couple of weeks ago, a lot of observations about how we work. Um, we're going to finish our time in God's Word and hear from Jesus an, an example of what it looks like to follow him and do what he did, which is our landing place this morning. But I'm just going to ask if you can, uh, I'll try not to lose you too much, but allow me to lay a little bit of foundation today for the sake of where we're headed in the future. And then the second disclaimer is that it is very possible that uh, we may not finish everything that I have this morning. And this is not typical for me, but I may just cut us off in the middle and we may pick the other half up next week. So just bear with me, be flexible if you can be. These are some broad concepts, but I think as we work through them, you're gonna be nodding your head, at least inside maybe. And frankly, uh, I don't even know how much you need to hear from me today after hearing our brother David's testimony of how Jesus has sought him out and loved him well and drawn him in. So you're headed to Galatians 5, hopefully, and I have a question for you as we come out of the gate. Are any of you getting frustrated yet with this series? Would you be willing? Do you feel like we're kind of taking a lot of time to talk about something that's coming, but we haven't quite got to the thing that it is yet? I noticed this last week. Thank you. I noticed last week that uh, a lot of you took pictures of my short list of some of the spiritual disciplines. I think that's great. Good for you. Uh, but I can understand if maybe you're kind of wondering, like, are we just going to spend 10 weeks talking about some vague idea before we fully land the plane? No, we're not. I do have to ask you to bear with me. I think that this is a significant enough paradigm shift in our understanding of discipleship that it needs the time that we're giving it. Um, but we are going to get down to brass tacks sooner than later. If you're like me, if you're type A, maybe if you're familiar with the Enneagram, you're an Enneagram 8 or an Enneagram 1. We tend to be doers. And so I will throw you a bone today. Uh, we'll, I'll show you, if you want to jump in here, these are some resources that you could potentially get involved in in the next few weeks, the next month or so. Maybe your life group wants to pick up one of these and chew on it together. These are things that I think are worth your time, but will not cause you to run so far ahead of where we are that you'll end up trying to do all of this alone or do it without the foundation laid, which is easy to do if we get excited, and I appreciate how bought in you guys are. But I would just recommend these things. I would recommend first, if you're looking for some daily reading from Jesus, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is his manifesto, if you will. This is essentially the blueprint for living life in the kingdom of God on earth. The kinds of encounters that we will still have, because Jesus is very much living in the real world, so you will be angry, you will experience lust, you'll be bitter against people in your heart, but what you do with that is more so a product of whether you are in the kingdom of God or not. To use the language of Jesus in John 14 and 15, whether you are abiding will be directly connected to whether or not you bear fruit. Mark chapter 1 would be helpful to you because that's where we're headed. Beginning in October, we're going to be alternating between the book of Mark, verse by verse, expositionally, and a practice at a time. We'll take a practice on, we'll give it the time that it needs, there will be uh, actual tangible steps for you to take each week with your life group if you are a part of a life group. Uh, and then we'll go back to Mark, and we'll spend some time in Mark just observing Jesus' life, hearing his teaching, growing alongside him. Uh, a book that I probably can't recommend enough is The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Uh, Dallas has been my philosophical guru for the better part of the last couple of years. Here is my uh, <laughs> caveat for you. If you're going to try to read The Divine Conspiracy, you need to read it with at least one other person, please. 
Uh, we read through it as a staff. If you know somebody on staff and you want to ask them their experience, probably the times that we got together each week and discussed those chapters, which at one point we had to stop doing a chapter a week and go to a half a chapter a week because there was just a lot to embrace and figure out. But that discussion time was what unlocked those concepts and helped us actually know what to do with them. Uh, Willard, if you don't know, was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California for a very long time, very established man in the secular world with a Christian worldview, and so he brings a lot of unique perspectives. Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline is a great primer on spiritual formation. It's very, very practical. Uh, it's one that you could read that would take you through the majority of sort of the classic or orthodox disciplines, the practices that we're going to get to as we preach through these things. And then, of course, I recommended last week, and I'll reinforce it today, Brother Lawrence's very short little packet that's been turned into a book called Practicing the Presence of God. This is a, just a quick intro on how to abide, how to get into God's presence. And the thing that sticks out to me about this little book that's so helpful is that Brother Lawrence, like Jesus, lives in the real world. He has real issues. There are real problems, real people who really get on his nerves, uh, which is, I think, our common human experience as well, and yet he finds a way to get himself into God's presence and to stay there every day, which is very helpful. So we talked last week about that concept. Abiding is the word that Jesus uses. Paul calls it praying without ceasing. We used the concept of the first two objectives of an apprentice of Jesus. We've said that apprentices of Jesus have three main goals. They want to belong to him first. We've seen Jesus call his disciples out in the book of Mark over and over again. We want to behold him. We need an up row, an upfront front row seat to what he's doing so we can watch how he does it. And we need more than that. We need to be with him in the times between the ministry, if you will, the valleys, so that we can see how does he prepare, how does he recover, how does he process? What is his perspective? So we dealt with those two last week within the concept of abiding. That's kind of those two tied together. It's just living in the presence of God, being called to him, by him, belonging to him, beholding him. This week we will get into becoming. We talked about last week also that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. He's not a mystical, mysterious, ethereal entity. He is the spiritual presence of Jesus for us. Jesus said in John 14 more than once that he, God would send another of the same kind. That, we would, that those disciples experienced Jesus in the physical, right? They could follow him around Judea and actually eat fish with him and sleep with him outside or go on a boat trip with him once in a while. We follow the spirit of Jesus spiritually. Still present, still very much available to our experience, but in a different sense. And we said this, that if the spirit inhabits our lives and if we abide in him, then much fruit will be produced in us. And this is where we landed the plane in Galatians 5. So I'm gonna read again to you the, the things that are on offer, the lifestyle, the fruit of abiding in Christ that's available to you in Isolations 5, beginning in verse 22. The, the Bible says this. I think we have that slide. We do. Okay. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, you see that language, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That's what the life of Jesus looks like. It's that process of doing those things. If we live by the Spirit, if we abide, then we ought to keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, this is not just a mental state to be in. This is not just a, a, a summary of information, a degree that we can earn, having had the knowledge that we need to live our lives. There is a keeping in step, a daily practice of walking with the Spirit that is on offer for us. So to me, that leaves us with a question, and this is where we landed the plane last week. What happens if I read those verses, and I would say that I am not those things? And I'm not becoming that way. I don't seem to be getting more patient with time. I don't seem to becoming, be becoming more kind. It's not that I have these old 
thorns or splinters stuck in my life because of previous experiences and I'm working on getting them out, that would be a good and right thing. It's maybe that I've just been the same for a very long time. And maybe I've learned to do a lot of Christian things in Christian contexts with Christian people, but am I actually a person who's bearing fruit? Because Jesus said, if you abide, the fruit will come. It's on its way already. It is, it is the life of Christ lived through you, the lifeblood of Christ, if you will, flowing from the branch in, or from the trunk into the branches out into the fruit that will shape your life. What do you do if you're not a loving person? How do you change if you've been unfaithful for a long period of your life? What if you tend to lose control or you are very harsh? Well, that's where we will go today. I have two objectives for us. First, I want to answer the question, can people really change? So we'll talk about that. We'll talk kind of how, about how that happens. And then we'll dig deeply into that process. So if change is possible, and spoiler alert, I will argue that it is very possible, that it's actually happening all the time, there's two ways that that comes about. There's what I call static formation, or what happens to you when you're not thinking about it, sort of passive or at-rest formation. What are the forces, what are the powers that are shaping and molding you without you even being engaged in that process? And then what does dynamic formation look like? Are there ways, and I think there are, where you can participate in your own spiritual formation? So, what do I do? What do I do if I'm trying to do Christian things? I would argue that this is probably true for most, if not all of us, most of the time. What do I do if I'm trying to do Christian things, but my life seems to be void of fruit? I want to become like Jesus. I'm here on a Sunday. I'm making this a priority. I'm trying to feed from God's word. I just got a little joy in my heart, maybe for the first time in a while, watching a brother be baptized and remembering the significance of that passage from death into life. But how do I take that with me, and how do I get these fruits to actually come out of me? Dallas Willard in the book that I recommended to you earlier, uh, has this to say about why many of us want what is right and yet can't seem to make that rightness a reality. He says this, the general human failing, so he's not just talking about Christians here, this is people. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but, so he's not saying we want the wrong things, we want what is right and important, but at the same time, not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action that we know to be right and will produce the condition that we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. He's very nice, but that still stings, doesn't it? Yeah, you're like, God, oh, I didn't know I was going to be looking into a spiritual mirror five minutes into the sermon today. Maybe now Dallas Willard's book is falling down your list of priorities. I'm not sure. But I think he's right. He says we avoid the life that would make rightness, if you will, or righteousness is the Bible's word, a reality. We don't really want to walk that path. The word that comes to my mind here is lifestyle. I would summarize what Dallas said, what I've observed in human character, including my own, for many years in this way. Our problem is that we want the life of Jesus, we want the fruits of the Spirit, we want the patience and the joy and the kindness and the gentleness. We're all about those things. Even Paul said, there will never be a law against those things. Those are good and right. But we don't want the lifestyle that produces those things. We would rather walk a different way, maybe a totally different way from the way of Jesus, and to do that six days and 20 hours a week, and then spend a few hours at Life Group and a few hours in here and hope that maybe by osmosis, over time, something will just suddenly change. We might not immediately describe our perspective on discipleship that way, but isn't that maybe how our lives look? Are we adding something in, like we add in supplements, like we take protein powder after a workout to try to accelerate our growth a little bit? Or have we adopted a lifestyle that would actually lead us into a different kind of life? 
I'll give you an example, a practical example that's really relatively void of spiritual significance here, just to help you get what I'm talking about. About a month ago, I joined a new gym. Um, I have been a part of a life group, the same life group, for about three and a half years, and there's a couple in that life group who have been on my back in the way that only workout fanatics can be to come to this gym and give it a try and experience whatever version of weightlifting and running, because that's all exercising is, that they have on offer. And so I went, so I gave it a try. They had a free week, I was out of excuses, right? I was like, I don't know if I wanna pay somebody to make me feel bad about myself. They were like, you don't even have to do that, it's free. You can come and feel bad for yourself at no cost. And I was like, okay, Chris, sounds good, we'll try that. So I went to this place and immediately I can tell that the kind of people who frequent this gym are different from me. They live and breathe these workouts. Like they have really planned, some of them even their career to a certain degree around being in this gym a couple of hours a week. And you can tell because they have that mountain running body that you don't see a lot of other places. Maybe it exists in Colorado, but like Alaska, we have a, a weirdly high percentage of these people. They have like Clydesdale horse legs. You've seen this? And the upper body of a 10-year-old boy, right? <laughs> like the puzzle got mismatched. They just put a little body on top of these giant piston legs and they can just run for nine days and not need to eat and not need to stop. Right, so I walk in and I'm like, okay, I think I know how this is gonna go. I thought I did and I was right, but I'm already here and I signed up and I have on my tennis shoes, so I guess I'm gonna stay. So the class I was a part of, this is how it goes. We have these things, they're called TRX bands, so five of you know what I'm talking about. They're basically straps that you can hang from something so that you can use your body against itself to try to get stronger. The class I went to, we put our feet into them, like stirrups behind our body, and then we had to do like planks and dips and weightlifting and all this other stuff with our feet off the ground the whole time. Well, that puts all your weight on your abs, and I don't have any of those. So it was a hard class for me. They didn't have any extras laying around that I could borrow. At the end of this class, okay, I'm exhausted. I'm like three or four exercises behind everybody else. And they're like running past me in their Cotopaxi headbands and their Lululemon tank tops. They're like tossing their ponytails in slow motion, just the right amount of sweat, right? So you know they're working, but they're still like pristine. And there's a small puddle underneath me where I'm like slipping in my own sweat trying to keep up. Anyway, we finished the workout and I thought, a, I'm never doing this again, and B, I have earned a reward today. I have really, I, I kicked my own rear end, and I'm going to make sure it pays off. So I got in my car, and I immediately drove to McDonald's, which is where healthy people eat, and I ordered a big latte with, like, all the sugar and dairy that they would put in it, uh, and a greasy sausage biscuit, and I celebrated. I enjoyed that. Now, I'll ask you this, and I think it's going to be obvious, but it's worth asking. Do you think I saw any of those workout demigods in line at McDonald's? No, right? It doesn't work that way. No, they went home from their workout and they had granola and yogurt or some kind of organic free-range egg white omelet with vegan cheese and turkey sausage, something like that, because they understood that if they were gonna show up in that gym for an hour and perform, if they were gonna be able to do the things they actually wanted to do, an hour a week wasn't gonna be enough. They had to live away. They had to make decisions the other six days of the week, the other 23 hours of those days when they worked out, to prepare them for and then to recover from that kind of outpouring of themselves. Spiritually, this is the model of Jesus. I told you at the beginning, we're already kind of out of time, so I don't have time to go into the depth on Scripture, but if you would take the time to read Mark 1, read the first five chapters of Mark, what you would see is that again and again, right before and right after major ministry experiences, Jesus disappears. Nobody can find him. Like, this is one of the most helpful things for me when I started taking a Sabbath once in a while, is I would feel really guilty at first. I was like, isn't the pastor supposed to always be on call? Like, aren't I supposed to go to the hospital for everybody who is hurt or is in a car wreck or gets a cancer diagnosis or whatever? Like, what if it happens on a Friday? 
Will I fail? Will they fire me? Will they reject me? Will they listen to me on Sunday if they can't get a hold of me on Friday? All this swirled around in my head, and then I read my Bible and realized the disciples are always looking for Jesus. They're like, where did he go? What is he doing? He'll send them away. He'll be like, you get in the boat and go, and I'll see you tomorrow. And they're like, what? You don't have a cell phone, Jesus. We don't know how to find you again. Like, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to start his ministry alone. The Greek word means a lonely place, a desolate place, a place without people, without noise, without distraction. And it is at the end of those 40 days that he is at the height, the height of his spiritual ability. He goes and encounters Satan and resists every temptation in a way that no human has ever been able to do. So anyway, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but we oftentimes are unwilling to embrace the lifestyle that would lead to the life. And maybe we don't even know that. Maybe we've never actually been given permission to just read the Gospels and come away asking ourselves, should I be doing that? Is that for me? Would following Jesus mean incorporating this practice or this idea or this routine into my life? In my case, I've thought many times about that class that I took. And I thought it would be awesome to have rock-hard abs, wouldn't it? Or one, just one rock-hard ab. If I could just feel one in there, I would know that I'm making progress. But to be frank with you, I am not willing to live the lifestyle that it would take to have that life. I don't want to go to 6 a.m. ab workouts and hang my feet in bands for an hour three times a week. I don't want to count my macros at every meal. I don't really want to tune my, car, my body like a race car at all. I'd love to have a race car body, but I don't care to put the work in. Now, I do still go to the gym because I don't want to die in my 50s, but as much as I admire the endurance and performance of those people, I don't want that lifestyle. I don't want the lifestyle that would actually form me into a high-caliber athlete, and this principle is true of our spiritual lives. I think the fundamental weakness in the common evangelical discipleship process that we've talked about and somewhat picked on for the last couple of weeks is that we want the life of Jesus without the lifestyle. So take just Matthew chapter 5 for an example, okay? If you want to turn there, you can. I'm not going to have time to read from it this morning, but you're probably relatively familiar. Within Matthew 5, Jesus uses a teaching structure where he'll call on an Old Testament law, and he'll say to his people, the crowd that's gathered around him, some of whom are disciples, some are not sure yet, he'll say, well, you've heard this principle for living. You've heard this rule of life, this law from God, but I say to you, the way that you apply it is actually different from the way that you have been. And in that context, he picks on several things that we deal with in 2022. He talks about anger. He deals with lust. He discusses infidelity. He talks about people who are manipulative, who take oaths or swear oaths to get people to do what they want so they can have power. And he talks about revenge. The question that we come away with when we read this is, well, what do I do, Jesus, if I want to become less angry? I understand the warning of what happens if I let anger fester and grow, but how do I become less angry? If, if just reading it, was enough to do it, that would be great, wouldn't it? Like you're at home on a, I'll use my own life as an example, a Tuesday afternoon, I've just picked my daughter up from school, she's had a hard day, she's in my ear, there's a whole list of stuff that needs my attention at home, yet I also left the office earlier than I wanted, so I feel like there's like five or six emails that are still looming over me that I haven't finished, and I'm already gearing up for tomorrow morning's early coffee meeting, so I'm figuring out my bedtime. Like in the chaos of trying to just puzzle through my day, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could just yell time out to my family, run into the garage, open my Bible, and read Matthew 5, and then say, God, make me patient. And he would go, boom, you're patient. And I'd be like, oh, you get, I'm untouchable now. Just annoy me as much as you want. It'll never run out. You'll, you'll, you can't get to me. I'm so insulated by the Spirit of God, it's impossible. It doesn't work that way, right? Wouldn't that be nice? It'd be really cool. Because it doesn't work that way, sometimes we think it doesn't work at all right? Let's, let's be careful that we don't assume that that's the case, because I don't think that is. I think we can change. We can become like Christ, 
But instead of us just expecting to suddenly intake some kind of information or knowledge and immediately experience life change, we have to understand that there's actually a life style that comes along with the life of Christ. That when he describes being patient, not lusting, staying faithful to your spouse, those are the byproducts or the fruits, if you will, of life in him. Jesus never teaches outside of the context of his own life. He's teaching people who have been following him, who are committed to following him, who want to do what he did and walk through the steps he took in his own life. And the question for me is if we pray to Jesus, Jesus, make me patient, and he doesn't immediately do it, or we think simply opening the Bible or downloading a podcast or ingesting a Christian book is going to somehow transform us permanently by itself, I think we probably know it's not going to work, but we just keep doing it, don't we? It's like nobody's ever been brave enough in our life to stand up and say, I don't think this is working. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it's almost by accident that we end up getting where we're going. It's like riding a bike with flat tires. If you work hard enough, you will eventually get where you want to go. But that doesn't mean the bike is working. That's the way our system often plays out. So I want to give you permission. I hope I already have the previous two weeks, but I want to give you permission to actually name the places where your discipleship process in your own life has failed you. Where are there areas where you retain the same old wickedness, the same blind spot, the same temptation, the same weakness? Think about all of the times that you've been willing to bombard that with knowledge or all of the times that you've been willing to bombard that by maybe putting that burden on other people. But ask yourself this question at the end of kind of that self-analysis. When, if ever, has someone actually given me real tangible steps that I can take that might truly, once and for all, turn me from a person who has that weakness into a person who does not? Does that even seem possible? I mean, is that, is that within your headspace, do you go, okay, all right, you, so you just picked on a bunch of other books and sermons, but all you're going to do is do the same thing and give us a five-step process, and if we follow it, we'll be changed, and I've seen this song and dance. Here's my commitment to you. The recommendations that I'm going to give you today and the next six or seven weeks are going to come right from the life of Jesus, and I think that's the difference. I think the difference is we have to remember, and that's why we've taken our time so far, that it's about abiding in him. The practices, the disciplines, the things I'm going to recommend to you, they only matter if they accomplish that goal. It's not they themselves that will actually change you. It will be abiding in Christ that will change you. The challenge is we don't necessarily know how to do that. We don't know how to change. It's not that we don't want to. We obviously do because we keep praying. We keep reading our Bibles. We keep coming to church. But how to change is a mystery to most of us. A paradigm shift for me has been realizing that in reality, we are already changing. All of us are. We are being molded, we are being formed by something, really by many things that are collectively working on us to turn us into a different version of who we are uh, than who we are, excuse me. The process of that change is what we call spiritual formation. And even though that sounds like Christianese, it's not. Every person is spiritual. Formation, even spiritual formation, is a human experience because humans change. All the time, our minds change, our sense of style changes, our location changes, our opinion changes. Many of us have experienced the totally disorienting experience of seeing a political party swing in our own lifetime on positions from one pole to the other and back again. People are fickle, they ride the waves of opportunity that come their way, and they are willing to open themselves to other people's influence even when it's not good for them. So as far as I can tell, there are two patterns for how we change. We have on one hand what we would call static formation, static spiritual formation, where we are at rest, we are still, and things are working on us, and dynamic spiritual formation, where we are participating, we are active, we are engaged with our own formation. 
There are five factors that contribute to each, and what I want to do for you is just as quickly as we possibly can lay out what those factors are. I want to explain to you that if change is possible and even maybe guaranteed, what can you do about it? So let's start with, first of all, what is happening to us, maybe against our will or in spite of us. Let's deal with the five factors of static formation. Here's factor number one, stories. The stories that we believe, the narratives that we have embraced shape us. And I think we probably already know this. We love this. This is the reason that 15 years ago, two guys decided to computer animate a bunch of vegetables and make them teach Bible stories. Because we love stories. We learn from stories. Song is itself a medium of story. It's a way we communicate an idea, a thought, an experience, a feeling. And even if you're super intellectual and you're one of these people who would say, oh, no emotion is ever worthy at all and they should all be kicked to the curb and it's all brain all the time, story still conveys information. It still gives perspective. It still shares insight into the why behind the what. Every year as Americans, we pay billions of dollars to read and watch and listen to stories that capture our imaginations. They stir our emotions and they give us tools and this is why they form us. They give us tools with which we try to navigate our humanity. Now, this has been true for as long as humans have been civilized. The ancient Romans learned their morals and principles from Zeus and Hera and Hades. The ancient Hebrews learned their morals and principles not from made-up gods, but from real people, Abraham and Noah and Esther. Modern Americans tend to learn our morals and principles from Obi-Wan and Peter Parker and Hagrid. We do, and we begin to live into these stories. We are desperate to watch good defeat evil, especially when the odds are stacked against good. We love watching people who have been damaged, who frankly carry baggage just like ours, find a way to triumph over that and come back from the brink and accomplish something. We want to watch someone do what we're afraid we may never be able to, and that is become different from who we are and live into a more successful, more vibrant, more appealing version of ourselves. A simple way to summarize that is the good life. We are looking for the good life. And the stories that we believe and embrace teach and form us toward whatever that story's idea of the good life is. I'll give you an example. Take marriage, something that we fought about in the political sphere for the last couple of decades. If you believe that marriage began as a way to bind together tribes and consolidate land and cattle, evolving eventually into a social practice intended to rob women of their rights and freedom and to insulate men so that they could be as promiscuous as, as, promiscuous as they want with the blessing of the state church before eventually, today, becoming sort of like an archaic vestigial appendage of the modern patriarchy, then, if you believe that story, here's what that will do. You will treat marriage like a hobby. You'll, you'll be like, it's fine for you guys. You do what you want to do but you will end any marriage you are a part of as soon as it begins to block your journey of self-actualization. You'll fear that marriage will keep you from becoming modern, that it will keep you from being educated well enough. You'll fear the commitment, and eventually you'll become deeply depressed. You'll be wildly lonely. That's the way that that story will form you, is you'll see marriage not just as something that God might have in, in the plan for many people or even most, but you'll see it as a thing that is weighing down society. You'll begin assigning evils to it that have nothing to do with it at all. And that's a story. That's what I mean when I say a story. It's taking data points in human history and it's reading them through a specific lens. This happened, then that happened, then that happened, so I draw these conclusions and here's my new principle. And I'm gonna apply that principle to my life so that I either avoid these evils or guarantee these goods. The stories that we believe form us. Number two is routines. Static formation, another word for this is our habits. 
We are formed by the subconscious habits of our lives. Many of you have probably heard of the late author David Foster Wallace, who wrote Infinite Jest. He was once invited to address a graduating class from Kenyon College, which is in Ohio, and he said this. I mean, this is a longer quote than I typically read, but I think it's very powerful, and it's especially insightful because it comes from a person who would not say that he was a Christian. So the spiritual insight that you're going to draw from this, just understand this is a human understanding and perspective on how we are formed. He's going to use the word worship. What he's describing, though, is our habits. He says this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Not a Christian, okay? No dog in the fight on the atheist-Christian fight. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. In other words, we get to choose what forms us. He says, if you worship your body and beauty and you worship your own sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they plant you. That's his way of saying before you die. He's sort of like talked in an edgy way sometimes. You'll die a million deaths. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now here is what this has to do with routines, unconscious habits. He says the insidious thing about these things is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they are unconscious. That's what makes them insidious. That's what makes them invasive. They slip in the cracks of your life because you're not even aware of them. They are default settings. They are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into Day after day, habit, routine, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. A non-Christian man said that. Now, he's smart, probably smarter than most of us. But how incisive is that for him to say, over time, you become more selective. You change the way you measure value. That's formation. Your lens, that big principle, the end of that story that you believe is adjusted and it takes an effect on how you live. You are being formed by the rhythms, the habits, the rights of your unconscious life. Things like scrolling your phone before bed shapes you. It just does. I don't think your cell phone is inherently evil, but it can be. Drinking too much in the winter is an issue that Alaskans deal with in Anchorage. Laughing along with your coworkers as they mock and deride their spouses at work is a shaping and forming thing for you. Exploding on your family every weekend because you pack your week full of busyness and hurry, but yet always feeling confused as to why it happened again. This is the example of our routines baked into our subconscious forming us. The things we do do something to us. You've heard me say this before. We form our habits, and then our habits form us. Number three, relationships. We are often attracted to people who are like us who look like us, who dress like us, who are into similar music as us, or love to get outside and hike or run or cycle like we do. But even though we may have chosen those people, what we're not aware of is that we are also choosing their lifestyle to rub off on us in a way. And we have to be careful, okay? Because I'm a youth group product, so I know what it's like to have people angrily yell at teenagers that if they hang out with the wrong people, something horrible could happen to them. The influence of other people is real. The sovereignty of God is stronger than that. We're going to talk about in a minute, if we have time today, probably next week, God's response to these things. But here's the idea. As we spend time with the people that we've chosen, we become like them. So I'll use my own life again as an example here. Even if you are a millennial product of the mid-2000s pop-punk scene, right, when it was cool to be countercultural, it's like our own little microwave version of Generation X as a whole. We thought we were going to rebel, and we liked songs that had cuss words even though we went to church. 
What we end up doing, even if we're all about rejecting the status quo, is we do that in a setting of relationships. And so we end up rejecting the status quo in the same way as everybody else. And so we all just move from one position and we go, oh, this is bad and wrong. We're going to stick it to the man and wear thick black eyeliner and platform shoes and band t-shirts. And we just move over here and now we have a new normal that we all belong to. We don't actually reject anything. We walk away from people and relationships that weren't valuable to us, but we keep that core group and we have that effect on each other so that we actually become more like the people who are close to us. The people we invite into our lives form us. Number four, our environment. Our place forms us. You may remember early on in the book of Exodus as we were dealing with the plagues, we talked about the idol of place. The piece of land that we consider to be our own, our community, our context, our city, our state, these things work on our minds and our hearts and often even our bodies. You know that the city of Anchorage has a plan for your life, right? Truly. Now, I'm not talking about the mayor or the assembly. I'm sure they probably do too. But the actual city, this machine of several hundred thousand people at the primary entrance and exit port of our state has an objective for you. It would like to wear you down in certain ways and build you up in others. It wants to form you. I'll give you some examples. Anchorage would love for you to get more into pizza. We have pizza everywhere. We have the highest grossing non-chain pizza restaurant in the United States. We love to say that, don't we? And love it or hate it, the moose's tooth is here and it's here to stay. Anchorage would love to get you into craft beer. When you go and get your slice of pizza, there's a selection of 50 to 100 different versions of the same drink that you can pick. And you can sit there with somebody else with a mustache and a backwards hat, and you can rap about all the notes and tones and the head and the flavor, and you're probably all making it up. I don't know. I'm not into it. Anchorage would like to get you into coffee, and it would like to get you to fight with other people about which coffee is the best coffee, like drug addicts on the corner. Deciding who's got the better drugs is the way that we speak to each other. This is my favorite one. Anchorage would love to get you to spend all of your extra money on hobbies that you don't even have yet. In fact, the state of Alaska is going to give you money that you didn't ask for once a year, right about the same time that REI and Chain Reaction and the Trek store are going to have their biggest sale of the year. How, how ordained could that be, right? So really, what choice do you have if you live here? You have to blow that PFD every year on a new bike chain and pogies and the right helmet and the right hat, right? Anchorage wants you to hike flat top, and then it wants you to judge everybody else for hiking flat top, right? And act like, oh, this is, everybody hikes flat top. You hiked flat top. We know that you did. Anchorage wants to make you liberal. Anchorage wants to make you outdoorsy. It wants you to be fit, crunchy, grungy, and casual. Our city is working on you. The way that you are dressed today in this room is probably markedly different from what you would have worn to another church in another place, in part because this city is doing its job. Now, not all of that is bad, but it's happening every minute. It is the air that you breathe. You cannot build a fortress in this city. No church has been successful in doing it, even though many have tried, to keep yourself from being available to that kind of formation. It is coming for you, and we have to be aware that it's happening. And that's just our physical environment. All of us also have one of these, and we'll talk about this more in a couple of weeks, but because we live on this side of 2007, we have a doorway into the digital world where most of us live a good part of our day, at least a few hours. And even when the phone is not doing evil to us, it is still a gateway drug to all kinds of neuroses and anxieties, insomnia, restlessness. So we'll talk more about the role that the digital environment that we live in plays in our formation later, but it's a factor. And then five, last one, and I think this is probably where we're going to have to land the plane today our experiences. What happens to us forms us. The single most formative factor in your life is your family of origin. Uh, There's a guy named Mark Leta who lives in Los Angeles and he spends a lot of his free time interviewing people 
uh, who probably most of us would not give the time of day. People who live on the street, people who are drug addicted, people who are prostitutes or who are... Um, who work a normal nine-to-five job but go on these heroin binges for two or three weeks at a time, people who grew up in horrible homes, sex offenders, felons, inbred people, pimps, the whole gambit of folks that we would like to kind of act like don't exist. And the common thread, I'm telling you, and I was a foster parent before I ever stumbled across this guy's work, so I had seen it firsthand, but the common thread in the life of every one of these people with a major problem is their childhood. So we have to be able to acknowledge that where we come from forms us We inherit a lot of things that we did not ask for. Our upbringing, including both our triumphs and our traumas, has a massive effect on who we are becoming. And without careful interpretation through the lens of grace and forgiveness, even those of us who were brought up in a Christian home still carry deep wounds. And those deep wounds still form us. So for better or worse, what we have lived through forms us. We grow toward or away from our experiences. Even when we have healed, our experiences are always a factor for us. So you are being formed. Even when you aren't doing anything that you would think of as formative, you are changing. And I know this is a lot to take in, but here's the bottom line. This is the principle that I want you to draw from these examples, okay? This is the big deal here. All you have to do is wake up tomorrow and these five things are working on you right away. All you have to do. Doesn't matter how you plan your day, what you wear, if you go to work or not, how you interact with your spouse or not, these five things are on top of you and they are inside of you and they are working and they are forming. And this is why that matters because when we look at Galatians chapter five and we go, geez, I'm trying to abide in Jesus but the fruit won't come, what confronts us is very possibly we have done nothing about these static factors. We're not actually thinking with the mind that God gave us to analyze and understand everything that's working against us in favor of forming us into someone we don't really want to become. And if we can't acknowledge those things, we'll never take the solutions seriously. We won't embrace what is going to be hard and frustrating and disruptive to somewhat reform our lives around the way of Jesus if we can't acknowledge that failure to do so does necessarily mean that we will go a very different direction, a direction that we don't want to go. So not only can you change, in truth you already are changing. And so the question becomes this, and I thought we would be about halfway through, but we're done today, so I'll leave this with you, and you can work through this in your life group this week. If we are being changed against our will, is the way I would say it, without our participation, how do we leverage those things? And how does God leverage those things so that we actually become like Christ? If we are changing, how can knowing that help us change into the kinds of people that we actually want to be? So I'm going to pray for you, and next week when you come back, we will get into the weeds on dynamic formation. I will provide for you from Scripture the five ways that the way of Jesus directly goes against these things and the hope that we have that you actually can change. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. And you've been so good today to give us the chance to begin our time in worship by hearing your word, by the gospel being made clear, who Christ is, who you are, Lord, to us, the work that you've done in our brother David. God, it's amazing to think about, just to take these principles and apply them back into the story that he told. What was forming him? What formed him to the point that his junior year, he suddenly came awake and realized he needed you? 
I pray, God, that as we wrestle with these things, you would guard our, hair, our hearts from the pit, that we would not go to the pit in despair, that we would not look around and go, oh my gosh, I'm just this unwilling product of this formation machine that is culture and the world and my past, but that we would remember, God, there are solutions. So let us be a hopeful people. Let us, to borrow David's words, see the slow sunrise on the darkness in our lives. Teach us from your word. Form us into the kinds of people who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and God, drive us to abide in you. May we be people who find a way to get into your presence and to stay there. We love you, Father. We give you the rest of this morning. We give you our week. I ask that you would continue to work in our midst and bring us back together next Sunday. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.